Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Encircling me, your words thrum like endless ground bees rising from the fields, the solace of their dirt-wedged nests dwarfed by the sun's dogged, dim rising. This program features the work of 2019 writer Christiane Balk. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Kathleen Flenniken, recorded in the Jack Straw Studio. Chris, tell me a little bit about your Jack Straw project. This project is a series of poems that I've been working on for a while, inspired by the life of my grandmother, who at a very young age, she was a very young woman, age 16, um, lied about her age in order to serve as a nurse in a casualty clearing station in the eastern part of France near Colmar. So her experiences doing that have inspired this series of poems, many of which are in the voice of a young woman serving as a nurse, but also some other voices coming up, her brother and a close confidant of hers who also is serving in in the station. Um, So it's early 20th century voices during World War I. So obviously you have a long writing life, um, and I'd love to know a little bit about how you came to writing and some Mm -hmm. of your background. I don't think there's ever been a time when I wasn't writing um, in journals, personal journals, poems. I can remember in third grade writing, and I always, even from early grade school, I always had the longest pieces of writing And then we would bring them up to the teacher, right, to be corrected. And I always had to go to the end of the line because mine always had the most misspellings and mistakes. (laughs) So so writing has always been a companion. Um, I think it was only in the 80s that I actually decided to focus on it and bring it into the world. So in the 80s, had you been to college yet or um yes i had been to college and i think who knows i was working as a journalist at the university of iowa and i had done a lot of writing you had a background in biology yes but i have to explain that a little bit at grinnell college where i feel so lucky to have gone to grinnell very small liberal arts college in the middle of iowa i couldn't stand to sit for very long and so the idea, you know, it was, it was it was semi-traumatic for me to have to sit and, like, write really long papers and research. And so I decided to major in what I loved, which was the natural world. And I was doing a lot of art at the time and um, did a lot of taxonomy. I was using a um, magnifying lens, a magnifying scope, to look at the flowers of grasses, mm-hmm. which are fairly hard to see unless you blow them up. And then I was illustrating them for different botany classes. And uh, several of them ended up um, framed in the hallways in the biology department at Grinnell College. Oh, gosh. So by majoring in um, biology, I was able to be in the natural world, lots of field trips, moving around, labs, drawing, physical activity. 
At the same time, the college encouraged independent studies. So I connected with a number of the English professors. And so every semester, I would be doing an independent study in writing, as well as all the science classes. So they were never separated for me. They were always together. I'm wondering if, because of your background and your interest in nature and your incredible gifts describing nature, if it surprised you at some point where you started writing these persona poems? I have to say it just started to happen. Now, you know, when I was writing in Iowa City, persona poems or object poems, you know, we were all exploring those at times and sharing those. Then after Iowa City, I went to something called the Breadloaf School of English. First, I went to the Breadloaf Writers' Workshop. But what a lot of people don't know is after the Writers' Workshop, there's an entirely different program that goes in there that's called the Breadloaf School of English. And it's a long-distance master's program, mostly a master's for folks who teach English. And it is incredibly staffed. And so I had the opportunity to spend the whole summer doing first the workshop and then the English program. And one of the classes that I took was John Elder's nature writing class in which we read all these unbelievable naturalists like John Muir, Aldo Leopold, William Bartram, fabulous people. And that was a normal literature class. And it just sort of came to me, and I talked to John about it. I said, you know, I don't want to write papers. I want to enter these people's lives and write poems. And he said, go for it. Mm -hmm. And so I just started writing these John Muir poems, just, just entering that world back then, inspired by their writings, mm -hmm. and touching perhaps on things they never touched on in their writings, but that were autobiographical or emotional journeys that they took. One of the great things about being a naturalist is you can bring in these details and you write about them so incredibly beautifully with the sound and the fine eye. And then you also bring in these details of the time. I'm wondering where those come from. Do you study books or images or, you know, when you're getting yourself into a time period, where do some of those sensory images come from? Well, I think first I just have like a sort of sense of a moment in a certain period of time. Or I might ask, okay, there's this moment, when is it? And what's nice about this project is I have a, you know, a spectrum of years. Now, what I've done with these poems is I've created, I've sort of taped together paper, and I've got a timeline of what was going on in the war, what was going on in other parts of the world, and what was going on in my grandmother's life. And so I refer to that to ground me. And then it sort of falls together. I place myself back in that time, on that day, on that hour, in this place. Where is it? Okay, get the maps out. I look. I know where she was based in Colmar. I look at the geology maps. I visited that area. I know the names of some of the ridges. Then I check what was happening militarily. And then what can you pull out that would be 
relevant to her at that moment? And what was she dealing with, you know, emotionally? Mm -hmm. Um, So it all sort of comes together. But the research is a really, really important part of it for me. It's a very grounding, creative part. And some of your research was done in Europe. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How long ago and how long did you stay? It was a short visit, and it was a number of years ago. It was just a couple weeks. And and collected maybe a Images in a journal. Yes, or... yep. And one day we hired a driver who took us into the hills where the casualty clearing stations were. And one had been turned into this fabulous primitive museum underground in a bunker. And and they had um, statues of the, you know, wax statues of the people uh, in their World War I clothing and uniforms. And astonishingly... Some of the land is still dangerous to walk on. You know, uh, you can't go here, you know, because they have, there's still armaments, bombs and things. Mm. So you have to walk on these little paths and you walk through the ditches. And yeah, it, and it's lovingly maintained by a handful of people who do not want to forget. So I could stand on hills and say, she stood here too. Now, we'll hear a selection from Christiane's live reading. I'd like to read a few selections from a series of poems that I'm working on for this project this this year, this Jack Straw year, I'm thinking of it. And I've been really struggling this past week to try to come up with a coherent story of how these poems kind of came about. And... And I realized I can't. I don't really know. Here's what I do know. As my grandmother um, was nearing the end of her life, she began to talk to my dad about uh, her experiences in World War I. And um, I had never known that she was a nurse in World War I. And, you know, that was kind of interesting. And then, you know, I sort of got started reading about World War I, getting interested in it. And then these people started popping up. One person in particular in, in my poems who, who seemed to be living in this time period, 1914 through 1919. And I decided to name the most persistent person who kept popping up in the poems, Suzanne. And then after a while, um, as she kept coming up, I, I sort of started to feel like I couldn't possibly have her go through the entire war without friends and, and con- <laughs> confidants. And so then these other people started to pop up. So as it is now, there are three of them. There's Suzanne, who's the main persistent voice. There's her best friend, uh, Josephine, who she's living with in England with Josephine's family as a nanny companion. And then there's Josephine's brother, Giles, who Suzanne is in love with. War began about a month before this particular letter. Night candles, September 1914. A couple things. Lou is a family dog. And England's Menace was a film, a movie released in 1914, uh, thought to be one of the first anti-Germany propaganda films. And this is a letter from Suzanne to her best friend, Josephine. Dear Josephine, 
Your mother says we've got to get some sleep. But Lou's still barking in the stable, stubborn, punky dog, locked in the empty box stall. She wants out. She wants to tag-tail Giles to the train station, ride with him beyond North Foreland and Calais, sleeping in his locker box. Let loose, I'll bet Lou would flush the Prussian spies, nip Fritz's heel all the way back to Berlin, and if the Kaiser doesn't run from Lou's tiny skull chipping yips, he'll die from lack of sleep. Closing my eyes, I see fields of other girls' brothers lined up just like Giles, dressed in khaki, watching for the train so intently they don't see us waving. Never mind, your mother says. He'll be home by New Year. She's promised me she'll show us how to listen to the tracks, to hold our ears close to the steel rails, to hear the guns go off in France. Shut up, Lou. The night candles flicker in their water-filled saucers, streaking my bedroom walls the way light sideslips the palace movie screen before England's menace begins to play. Swirled smudges turning, numbers jumbled, shapeless flecks furrowing the fabric stage like sea ripples surging just before something big begins to slowly rise from deep below, and I refuse to close my eyes. Your loving friend, Suzanne. And Josephine answers. Josephine has gone to France at this point and is um, signing up to be a nurse herself. Tête de Faux is a place in eastern France, as are Belfort, Sauvergne, and the Bauge Mountains. The Bauge are German. Tête de Faux, October 1914. Dear Suzanne, we watched the eastern sky at dawn, taking turns, observing the Bosch. Dark, dappled clouds fill the valley, as if with scales from a giant lizard, skinned and stretched rind-wide, from Belfort to Saverne. Dear friend, we need you here. I'm in the Vosges Mountain Field Station near Tête de Faux, setting up tents, clearing willow, laying down the wood plank walkways. Training's such a waste. The first day we served tea and ginger snaps and learned to bleach and starch bed sheets and washed and dried new bandages and wrapped them neatly in tight rolls and rinsed a thousand pillow slips in dilute carbolic acid. Head sister says the wounded will come soon. We'll learn hands-on. Just say 18 when the clerk asks how old you are. I think of how iris bend beneath hard rain touching ground with stems intact, and where the leaves embrace their stalks, a green cup holds ice watertight. Please say you'll be here soon. With love, Josephine. Giles gets wind of what his sister and Suzanne are up to, and he's just finished training, left the initial training camp, and has moved on to what will eventually become the Royal Air Force. The RFC that he refers to is Royal Flying Corps, and he sends a telegram to Suzanne. Addressee, Suzanne, Elms House, Gowan Bank Road, Olton Station, 18 November, 1914, origin, France, 53 words, don't leave, stop. Tell mother transferred from Calais camp to RFC, pilot training, censeur, Stop. 
Fields of wounded train loads full, ships sent home, stop. Marn stalemate not for girls, stop. Too many nurses here, no more needed, France, stop. Keep mother company, stop. No good news here, mother needs you, stop. Please stay, love, always stop. Your royal airman, Giles. Suzanne responds to him on a train from Paris to Colmar. En route, Chaumont, December 1914. Dear Giles, the fields out here unfold themselves the way damp wool bedrolls open, slowly southwest of Strasbourg, pulling me as a gentleman might stretch a hand, encouragingly. And somehow the sun, sweet bismuth, white old disc lifts itself up again. Another Fokker's downed one of our monoplanes, brand new hardwood braced with steel wires and linen wings, stiffened with dry kerosene, filled with all the light soaring luck this train load hopes for. If only I could reach high enough to touch your wingtips before the shuddering begins calling all of us again to bless the earth's flat, bright, blue stone plains fast approaching, showering us with glowing petals strewn from far above. Giles, I've signed my name. I'm on my way now to Chaumont to meet Josephine. As free as these fields, encircling me, your words thrum like endless ground bees rising from the fields, the solace of their dirt-wedged nests, dwarfed by the sun's dogged, dim rising. With love, Suzanne. The last is also from Suzanne to Josephine this time, and uh, we're going to skip ahead two years. Uh, Josephine and Suzanne are serving in different uh, field stations, both near the front, but they have to communicate by writing. Remembering David, July 1917. Dear Josephine, his cries dismayed the new sisters. We took turns holding his head against matron's wishes, kneeling too close. I cut the shards of his burned jacket free. Blistered skin ripped with a cloth, and what wasn't singed was yellow. What did I know? I'd never seen gas before. There wasn't time to register his name, David, penciled on torn paper pinned to his cuff, or his age, young boy's body, reduced to agony. I took over, praying he'd be the last like this we'd ever see. Matron told us all to shower, change our clothes immediately. I could barely touch him. I'm ashamed to tell you, so completely writhed the tent. Tears are just one of Mustard's talents. Rinsing him, I imagined holding the one Michelangelo dreamed of, desiring someone whole, unharmed and still. Through gritting eyes, I thought I saw the cost of working tons of pure white stone into a breathing body wild for the beloved just out of sight. That first night, we almost lost him. Christ, what price beauty, birth. What price these milling thighs, sloughing eyes, cruciferies, dark oil, glistening as far as the front stretches and farther. Orders from above, what does that mean? I won't forget him, his face. Morphia blessed, he died the second day. Then came the others, staggering, crawling, 
carried, blinded, blistered, bombless, emptying our pharmacy. Stained, we sisters soaked ourselves unknowingly, hunching over cots, desperately stripping, sponging. Within hours, none of us could breathe. Eyes and noses running, hair grege, skin bleached dull sulfur from the inside out. Whose work this? Dazed, we kept on nursing. Yours, Suzanne. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jackstraw production produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther at Jackstraw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, Tom Stiles, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by the Bird Tribe Orchestra, produced through the Jackstraw Artist Support Program. The 2019 curator of this program is Kathleen Flanagan, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keene. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back-fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks go to Larry Lawrence for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>